Those words, I'm in control here, the words that got Al Haig in trouble. They were spoken on the day that President Reagan was shot. He was in the White House just a few minutes earlier. Larry Speaks, who was the assistant press secretary, was in the briefing room because his boss, Jim Brady, who passed away this week, had just been shot in the head along with President Reagan. And Larry Speaks had said, I don't know who's in control. Well, that wasn't exactly reassuring to a nation who is reeling from these moments when their president has just been shot. Al Haig was Secretary of State, a retired four-star general, highly decorated, served in war and peace to our country, had done some pretty amazing things during his career, and yet most of us remember him. If we hear his name, we remember that moment. I am in control here. And my guess is he was probably sort of communicating a political reality. Uh, Vice President Bush was on the way from Texas, returning from, to Washington, D.C., was a little bit in and out of communication. Al Haig was there in the White House. He was probably sort of running things. He was doing what a retired four-star general does in the midst of crisis. He took charge. And yet the problem was he wasn't right. What he said was constitutionally incorrect. It was the president and the vice president and then two other individuals and then the secretary of state who were in succession that day, presidential succession. So really, he was wrong. And the problem was, from that moment, that just sort of spiraled out of control in the White House to the point that everybody was saying, who does he think he is? It was just sort of self-destructing in front of us. We struggle when we don't get our role, when we don't know really what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to fulfill our job in that moment. Our culture struggles with that a little bit. Seeing it at work and the news this week. Maybe you saw these two pictures I want you to see this morning. You see that this week? Uh, David Slater, two years or three years ago, 2011, took his camera to the jungle and it got stolen by monkeys. And they began to take pictures of themselves. Apparently, they knew what a selfie was before we knew what a selfie was. And now there's a problem because he's suing to get the rights to those pictures back because he says since he took the camera to the jungle, he owns them. The people who have the pictures in their possession are saying, no, they don't belong to him. They belong to the monkeys. They took the pictures, right? Actually, to no one, because monkeys can't hold a copyright. But the point is, we're struggling a little bit to understand our roles here. But we see that in a more serious way in lots of areas of our life, right? On the job, if a supervisor is not taking his job or her job, if they're not being the leader, what happens? You get an organization that doesn't work. You get an organization that doesn't fulfill its goals. You have a broken organization. Uh, we could see that in a family, right? If you have a parent who doesn't want a parent, who doesn't lead their kids down the right paths and show them how life should look, who doesn't sometimes have to discipline, you have kids who are launched sort of in the wrong trajectory in life, and they may pay for it the rest of their lives. We see that with not just supervisors, but employees. When they don't understand how to follow, how to be led, you end up with a broken organization. So when, when we don't understand what we're supposed to do, the role that we're supposed to fill, what we end up with are broken relationships 
and broken organizations. Happens in church. When leaders don't lead, and when people refuse to follow, you get broken relationships and broken organizations that don't fulfill their purpose, that don't meet their, their mission that's been set before them. So what do we do with that, and how do we overcome it? To get at that, I'd like for us to turn to First uh, Samuel chapter 13. We continue today in our series that we're calling Self-Destruct Sequence. And we've seen people self-destruct on live TV, and their lives begin to spiral out of control. The thing with Al Hague was really just momentary, but still we remember him for that. And that list of people that we've seen, we've seen their lives fall apart. And we're looking at the life of a man named Saul. Not Saul, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, but King Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. A man who was appointed by God, chosen by God, anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel. And we see because of some poor decisions that he made, his life began to self-destruct and spiral out of control. And we see that begin in the passage we're looking at today. 1 Samuel 13. Saul has just become king. We talked about that some last week. He's anointed by Samuel and then called before all the people and made the king of Israel. Now, in ancient Israel, the most important job of anyone who was leading the nation, whether it was one of the, the judges that was before Saul or the king, the most important thing you had to do was fight off the Philistines. This was a, a people group who had come in by sea. Great sailors, but also great warriors. They lived along the coast, and they were constantly raiding into Israelite territory and taking what they want and then going home. And they had technology that was superior to the Israelites. They used iron rather than bronze, which is much stronger. They had larger numbers than the Israelites. And so the Israelites had this constant worry of being overtaken by the Philistines. If you want to be a successful leader... You've got to fight them off. So that's the first thing Saul does. He calls an army to himself, and he eliminates some people that he doesn't think are going to be great warriors, but he includes a lot that are unfortunately hired hands, mercenaries. But he divides them up into three divisions, two under his command, one under the command of his warrior son, Jonathan. And Jonathan immediately takes his army and attacks a Philistine town. And he is victorious, and the people are encouraged. But the problem is, it was a minor victory, and all Jonathan really did was to serve to make the Philistines mad. So, you have Jonathan come back, you have Saul with his army, and 1 Samuel 13 lays out the size of Saul's army. It's pretty impressive for the ancient world, but then it lays out the size of the Philistine army that comes against Israel, and it is many times larger. And remember, they have better technology greater warriors, it doesn't look good for Israel. They look like this small troop compared to this vast army that the Philistines have gathered. And the question is, what's going to happen next? Saul's got these hired hands with him. And they're looking out on this huge army that's arrayed against them. And guess what's happening? You can sort of imagine what's going to happen. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in the second part of verse 7, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. They're scared to death because they know that there's no way to beat this Philistine army. And then this, verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So what's going on there? Okay, in the ancient world, before you went into battle, one of the things that you had to do was to sacrifice to your God. For Israel, the one true God. 
And so they were waiting to make this sacrifice. And your question might be, why didn't they go ahead and do it? It's just what that says. Samuel said he would be there in seven days to make this sacrifice. Why didn't Saul do it? Because there was a clear delineation. The king is a warrior. The king is a political leader. He leads the army. In that day, priests and prophets were the religious leaders. They were the ones who spoke for God. And they were the ones who could offer a sacrifice to God. A clear delineation of roles. We call it separation of powers, right? Saul couldn't offer the sacrifice. He wasn't allowed to offer the sacrifice. And Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. We'll make the sacrifice. And then you can lead your army into battle. But the problem was, Samuel didn't show. And he didn't call ahead. He didn't do anything to let Saul know what was going on. And so here's Saul. Imagine him in this position. His first real battle as the king of Israel. And what's happening is, his army is melting away behind him because they are so frightened of this vast Philistine army. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and seven days have passed, and every day more of his army is leaving And this army before him is getting larger and larger in his mind because his forces are getting smaller and smaller. Seven days pass, pass, and then Samuel still doesn't arrive. And he's left in his mind, I believe, with two choices. Either allow the Philistines to overtake the army, and then that just opens up the whole land for the Philistines to come in and take what they want from Israel, or offer the sacrifice and lead his army into battle with the army he's got and not lose any more. Well, Saul decided that his only real choice was to make that sacrifice and lead the army into battle. And that's exactly what he did. So he makes the sacrifice. He gives it according to you know how it should be done. And then he's ready to turn and literally turn and lead his people into battle. And guess who shows up? Samuel. It's almost as if he's waiting. He walks in and and Saul greets him as he always did, sort of in deference. He's the religious man, the religious leader, and, and Saul respects him and he greets him. And this is how Samuel responds. 1 Samuel 13, 11. What have you done? What were you thinking? Why would you possibly think that God would want you to make a sacrifice to Him? You know that that's not something you're allowed to do. What have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. I had no choice. Listen, Samuel, what was I supposed to do? I mean, it's either certain defeat, or I make this sacrifice, and we go into battle. You weren't here. What was I supposed to do? I was compelled to do this. I had no choice. Samuel knows He had a choice. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing. 
And remember in the Old Testament, foolish is not just, hey, you made a bad decision, you should have thought this through more carefully, you didn't use good leadership skills. Foolish is God's command has been violated. You have sinned and you're going to pay the price. That's foolish. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, David, and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So what happens? Listen, Saul, you, you could have been the first among a long line of kings. Your family could have been a dynasty that led Israel forever, and instead, because of your disobedience, because of your foolish behavior, your line has been cut off. And your sons will not reign over Israel. And God is going to choose someone after his own heart, someone who pleases him. And it's our first reference, really, to David, who will enter the picture pretty soon in this story. And and as David rises, Saul completely loses it. And it's this moment that changes everything. It's this moment that sets Saul on this negative trajectory of life that he's just going to fall apart. And we might say, doesn't seem exactly fair i mean he just just made an offering why is it such a big deal the clear issue is that saul didn't respect god's command the clear way that god had delineated this role there was no question there was no doubt over whether he should or should not give this sacrifice he should not have done it and yet he did And he paid the price. Because it was clear that he was not going to follow God's direction. Now, the end of the story is that after all that happens, Saul does lead this small band that's left into battle. The odds are overwhelming, and yet God still gave him the victory, which showed from the beginning that if Saul had just waited, God would have taken care of him. But what do we learn from this? And the lesson is really simple. It's the title of our message today. Know your role. Saul should have known. He should have known his role is to be the political leader, to lead his army into battle. Samuel has a very different role as a religious leader, spokesman for God, the person who could make the sacrifice. The the roles were clearly delineated. There should be no confusion. But because Saul didn't see his role and follow it, he got into all this trouble. So what can we do to to try to follow this this instruction to know your role. A couple things that I think. First of all, recognize where you have a leadership role. And you might say, I'm I'm not a leader, you know, I'm I'm more of a follower. Well, think about that though. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're someone who has a responsibility over children, parent, maybe grandchildren, you're a leader. If you're a teacher, you're a leader. If you have influence over people, you're a leader because that's what leadership is. It's not just position. It's not holding a position. It's influencing people. So you probably are a leader in some setting. Now, some people are just natural-born leaders. You know, Alexander Haig, my guess is there was confusion, and he walked into that situation and thought, okay, somebody's got to take control over this and lead. And he did. Some people are like that. Other people find leadership troubling and they're not ready to take it on. 
And yet when we are in a leadership position, part of the lesson of this story is take it on. Take on the leadership and do it. I mean, it matters whether we do that or not. Without this kind of leadership, what do we get? Broken relationships, broken organizations. Now clearly what we don't mean is to what Scripture would call sort of lord it over. You know, to make people's lives miserable because you're in control and you're making demands on their lives. But instead, showing people the right path. Showing them how to be successful. Feeding into them so that the organization and the people in the organization can be successful. It's true for church. It's true for business. We need people to be good leaders. And the second, recognize when, you're in, when you have a role of submission. Now, when we hear submission, in some ways in our culture, that's a, that's a negative word. I don't want to be beat into submission. I don't want to have to submit to someone else. But that's not a scriptural view. Because in Ephesians, we're told to, as the church, submit to one another. So we all have a role of submission at one level. And when Scripture speaks into that, it's more we should lift up the needs of the people around us more than we lift up our own needs. We should be concerned about the people around us. We should be servants of the people who surround us in our church because we care, because we're bound together in Jesus. So submission is not a negative thing. But it is a difficult thing for some people. Those natural-born leaders that walk in the room and expect to lead when we find ourselves in a different situation, they may find it difficult, right? But we all have those places. Maybe even at work, you're both a leader and then there are places where you've got to be in submission. In fact, that's probably the case. Where you may be leading people, but you answer to someone too. Or answer to a board. So it's both. And when we're in the position of being a follower, when we're called to follow someone else's leadership, how do we respond to that? And do you make that person's life miserable because you want to be in charge? Or do you allow them to teach you something? To show you how to be successful? To allow them to cast vision so that the organization can be successful? So you can feed something into it? Do you allow them to help, help make healthy relationships and a healthy organization? Which is it? You know, my guess is for most of us, we can think back in our lives and think of, think of one person, maybe more than one, who were really difficult to work for. I mean, it was just miserable to have to work for that person because maybe they didn't lead at all and the expectations were unclear and you never knew exactly what you were supposed to do and it seemed like you were always messing up because you didn't know how to do what was right. Or they just made your life miserable because they told you every single thing to do. I mean, you had no freedom to think for yourself. I mean, you can somebody's probably in your mind. They are in mine. And then you probably can also think of someone that you really love to work for because they were always sort of helping you along the path and teaching you and showing you how you could be more successful, how you could grow in what you were doing. And those are the kind of people that we could work for the rest of our lives. The kind of people we want to be like. Which one are you? And when you're in a position to follow, do you make it easy on the person who's got the leadership role? 
Or do you make their lives miserable because you don't like where you are? We're going to find ourselves in the leadership positions and in the following positions, the submission kind of positions. And the question for us, are you going to help create an environment with broken relationships and a broken organization? Or are you going to do whatever you can, whether you're the leader or the follower, to create healthy relationships and a healthy organization? Know your role. Let's pray together. God, help us to avoid the mistakes of Saul. Where you knew, knew someone else was supposed to fill a role and he filled it himself even though he knew he shouldn't. Help us to know what you've called us to do. Where we're supposed to lead and where we're supposed to follow. Where we're supposed to teach and where we're supposed to learn. Because we want to be the church and the individuals that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name.